Hey friends, welcome back to the Field Guide to Body Language podcast. I'm Laurel, your host and fellow body language nerd. Um, Can I just say that reading and researching uh, for this episode while my kids were home on spring break was an adventure. Today was their first day back at school, and I was just so grateful that I didn't have to record while they were home. I always feel weird if I know someone can hear me recording, uh, which is ironic for obvious reasons. But when I know people can hear me um, while I'm actually doing the recording, I get really nervous. Um, But, but here we are, you and me and Louie and Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman is a really interesting man who did some really interesting and controversial work and research. Uh, He also stands in an interesting place in the history and study of body language and expressions. And so today I just want to talk a little bit, uh, not only about Paul Ekman's work, but also a little bit about the history of the study of body language. So we can kind of put uh, Mr. Ekman in his like place in time and space. I find myself asking why a lot or like what happened before this to make this thing happen. And so when I'm trying to figure out like where people's point of view comes from, I always like to look back into the history of what they study just to like understand where they're coming from and like where they sit in the field, if that makes sense. So let me set the stage a little bit, uh, starting with Charles Darwin the Charles Darwin, the naturalist and biologist who also brought us the theory of evolution. There were people who studied emotions and body language before Darwin, but there are only so many rabbit holes I can go down in one day, and we are not going down any pre-Darwin rabbit holes. I'm sure there's an evolution joke somewhere in there. In 1872, Darwin published a book called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. In that book, Among many other things, Darwin presents that facial expressions are universal and gestures are culture-specific. I have started reading it. I haven't finished it yet, but it's been actually a really enjoyable read so far. It's it's very it's like very readable. It's not like reading Dickens or Shakespeare or the New King James Bible where you get kind of like tripped up in the language. Darwin's writing is super approachable, and I'm I'm really looking forward to finishing it now that my kids are back in school. Um, but, but Darwin didn't set out to study body language or expressions. If I remember correctly, um, the expression of emotions in man and animals was just supposed to be a chapter in another book. I don't remember if it was on the origin of species or the descent of man, but expressions didn't start out as a standalone book. He had so many observations and thoughts on the subject though, that it became its own book. For today's purposes, this is all we need to know about Darwin. He was a naturalist in the late 1800s, observing what he decided were universal expressions and culture-specific gestures. The next contributor in our timeline is Ray Birdwistle. Birdwistle was an anthropologist who was born in 1918, passed away in 1994, so he was younger than Darwin by quite a bit, and his work was obviously published later. Uh, he has he was a contemporary of Edward T. Hall, who developed the concept of proxemics, which we talked uh, we talked about that briefly last season. It's like the personal space and safety um, episode. So if you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But uh, 
But in all honesty, like I will probably go back and after I've read all of his books and recover proxemics, but I digress. Okay. Uh, we're talking about Bird Whistle. Bird Whistle is the guy who literally created kinesics as an area of study. If this term is new to you, kinesics is the formal name for the study of the role of movement in nonverbal communication uh, from like an anthropological perspective. Proxemics, like I said, developed by Hall, is the study of personal space as it relates to nonverbal communication. If you Google either of those, the phrase haptics might also come up, which is the study of touch as it relates to nonverbal communication. Um, those are all phrases that I don't use as much because I'm a movement analyst, uh, not a scientific researcher or anthropologist. So I have a different vocabulary and a different way of looking at things, um, which I think Margaret Mead would approve of, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You may remember that I mm, confessed a couple of episodes ago uh, to trying to read Ray Birdwistle's book, Kinesics in Context. And it literally puts me to sleep in like under a paragraph. It is like trying to read a math textbook. And I don't think it's his style of writing. I think it's user or, or rather reader error. Anyway, Bird was still felt that human gestures had many different meanings depending on the context in which they appeared. He also felt that there was no one way to interpret or decipher body language. He felt that it should be interpreted broadly um, while taking all of the other elements of communication into account. The general feeling among anthropologists was, and I believe still is, although I'm not an anthropologist, so it could be totally wrong here, that facial expressions and their meanings are determined through behavioral learning process. Birdwistle's research and point of view was backed by Margaret Mead and many other prominent anthropologists of the time. So right now we have, like, in one corner of the ring, Charles Darwin, a naturalist, and in the other corner of the ring, a handful of anthropologists, um, including Birdwistle, Margaret Mead, Edward Hall, I think Gregory Bateson, who, who I think was married to Margaret Mead. I might be misremembering that. Um, ooh, 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 and... And Alan Lomax. Um, this is a rabbit hole worth going down. Alan Lomax, this totally geeks me out, you guys. Okay. Alan Lomax was one of Birdwistle's students, and he was known for his work on the Cantometrics Project, where he studied cultured, sorry, he studied cultures through their music, which is super cool. Um, I'm just going to read um, a bit to you from this article that I found that literally made my whole life and this entire podcast come full circle. Um, this is from the Association uh, for Cultural Equities website. I will leave a link to the full article in the show notes in case you want to go uh, read the whole thing because it's, it's great. Highly recommend. Quote, Alan Lomax, who took two seminar courses with Birdwistle in the early 1960s was profoundly influenced by him. In developing his theory of cantometrics, Lomax's conception of song style as standardized communicative behavior owed much to Birdwistle's concept of communication as a systems-maintaining function. Later, Birdwistle suggested to Lomax Birdwistle suggested to Lomax that perhaps dance as a more primary communication system than even song might yield even better correlations with social factors, and he steered Lomax to the dance notation system of Rudolf Laban. This led to the development of Lomax's choreometrics research, end quote. The system that Rudolf 
Laban developed is the system that I am trained to use. And when I was going through my training, we actually watched the film Alan Lomax made at Bird Whistle's suggestion. Um, is there a link for you in the show notes? Yes, there is, because that sucker's on YouTube. If you do decide to watch the video, please note that it was made in the 1970s and the narration is really sexist and really racist. The research is awesome. Um, the way that Lomax and his fellow researchers applied the Laban system to study cultural dances um, is just is just really cool. So try to take the work away from it and we can all remember how far we have come since the 1970s and more importantly, how much farther we have to go. Okay, so all of that is in the show notes if you want to explore it. While we're on the topic of the study of anthropology, it's also worth mentioning something about how anthropology has developed um, like in the past hundred years or so. When Darwin was observing and writing, it was believed that there were like quote unquote primitive societies that weren't as advanced as European societies were. Um, Fortunately, since that time, anthropology has grown a great deal. And now when anthropologists approach their work, they approach each society and culture without comparing its state of like advancement to European societies. Um, there are technical terms for this, but it's been a hot minute since I listened to the library's lectures on anthropology and I've forgotten what the exact terms are. I'm sorry. What is important to remember is that Darwin's contributions um, came when anthropology as a study, we'll just, we'll say it wasn't in a great place. Since then, anthropology has come to study and value each society and culture in and of itself. So let's circle back around to Bird Whistle. Um, his work really fell into the each culture is cool in its own way bit of the anthropology timeline. And I think that shows in his view and in his study of kinesics. I think it'd be remiss if I didn't just like put this out there in the world. Um, right now, like especially in movies and TV shows, there is a great deal of oversimplification of the study of kinesics. Um, and then sometimes it's, it's like even called out in the script, like, uh, Oh, he just turned his head to the left. He's lying. It's basic kinesics. Um, and I, I think Birdwistle would be mortified at the thought of kinesics in any way, shape, or form being basic. Um, I have been binge-watching Elementary, which is a Sherlock Holmes adaptation with Lucy Liu as Joan Watson. Um, I love Lucy Liu, and uh, the show is perfect for my evening knitting. But all of the body language references in the show are, like, oversimplified and then dramatized, and and I have to, like... They, they they make me so crazy. Every time a body language comment is written into the script, I hear it and I get a little twitchy and then I say to myself, Bird Whistle wouldn't approve. Next to enter the stage is finally Paul Ekman. Um, Mr. Ekman was born in 1934, so he's just a little younger than Bird Whistle um, and he is an American psychologist. And I think that is Important to note, the study of body language has many contributors, and it should. Um, it encompasses many disciplines. Um, Ekman believed, like Darwin believed, that there were universal facial expressions that conveyed specific universal emotions. Um, I read two of Ekman's books for this episode. I read Emotions Revealed, I read the second edition of it, um, and Telling Lies. 
Um, emotion uh, telling lies was actually published first though in 1985 and then emotions revealed was published in 2003 ekman began his study on the whole of nonverbal communication but then he narrowed his focus to facial expressions he received a grant from arpa the advanced research projects agency uh, which i think at the time was darpa the defense advanced research projects agency um which my grandpa actually used to work with them. So every time I hear the word or like the acronym DARPA, I'm like, ooh, grandpa used to work for them. Anyway, uh, but anyway, he got a grant and studied facial expressions in a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea with methods that uh, Margaret Mead didn't approve of. She actually accused him of doing, and this is a quote, improper anthropology, end quote. Uh, that bites. But also Ekman was out of his wheelhouse. He's a psychologist. He's not an anthropologist. So his style of research is going to look a little different than if the study of facial expression was taken up by an anthropologist who's trained to study cultures. Ekman wanted to know if Darwin was right or if Birdwistle was right. He started off suspecting that Birdwistle was correct, that there were no universal facial expressions, that everything was culturally dictated. But as he carried out his research, he felt that the evidence was strong for universal expressions. And so he just hopped on over to Darwin's team. With his grant from ARPA, Ekman set out to find a society that was visually isolated from the outside world. So like no TV, no magazines, no newspapers. Um, this was pre-internet, so obviously no internet. Um, he felt that if a society was visually isolated from the rest of the world, but had the same facial expressions representing the same emotions that Ekman did, um, an American man, then it would prove the existence of universal facial expressions. He studied film and photographs and talked to the people of Papua New Guinea, uh, showing them photographs of like different facial expressions to try and figure out if the facial expressions were the same from one culture to another. Um, and Ekman did do more research than this, um, but this is the study he's most famous for and it's most talked about in his book. Um, and this is the one that gave rise to his theory on universal facial expressions. Um, so as a result of this original research, he came up with a handful of universal facial expressions or expressions that he felt were universal. Um, and they and they are happiness, anger, disgust, sadness, and fear or surprise. Happiness, anger, disgust, and sadness were all easily distinguishable from another, and fear and surprise were easily distinguishable from the others, but not from each other. So they kind of grouped them together. Um, and this has morphed as he continued to do uh, more research. So if you go to his website, it will look a little bit different, but this is the original list of universals. Um, it was just those five emotional expressions. Even though his research methodology wasn't great and there were some serious language barriers, I can kind of see where he was going with this. These are all very basic emotions. And he goes on later in his book to describe each facial expression in great detail. Um, and I think I can get on board with the theory that that small handful of very pure emotions are like readable or understandable throughout humankind. Um, I do, I do though, you guys, the rabbit holes. Um, I do wonder what the what role are mirror neurons play in all of this? Um, this would be like so cool to study now that we have fMRI capabilities. 
um, like, I don't know, guys, I just want to be like, what about the mirror neurons? Like, is it, are they just like, maybe they're not universal expressions. Maybe it's not the same kind of happiness from culture to culture, but it's close enough that our mirror neurons can read it and be like, check the box for happiness. I don't know. I, what I really want um, is like a panel for the podcast. So that we have like a neurologist and an anthropologist and a psychiatrist and uh, who else? And a communications professor. Karen, this is your formal invitation. Um, and then someone who is either like a professional researcher or a methodology queen to keep us honest. That would be fun. Back to Ekman. Uh, he knew where the uh, anthropological community stood. It was firmly with Birdwistle, and he was very concerned with convincing the anthropology bigwigs of the validity of his work. And he, um, and so he realized the culture did it. It did play a role in the expression of emotions. So he introduced a concept that he's called display rules. Um, here is the theory of display rules in a nutshell. Essentially, everyone displays happiness with a smile, but the culture we live in dictates when it's appropriate to display happiness. This is, I'm just going to read you a quote from page four of Emotions Revealed. Quote, I reconciled our findings that expressions are universal with Birdwistle's observation of how they differ from one culture to another by coming up with a concept of display rules. These, I proposed, are socially learned, often culturally different, rules about the management of expression, about who can show which emotion to whom and when they can do so, end quote. I have to say, I kind of like this concept, it, at least as it stood in his original research. I don't love where he took it, but the thought of there being a handful of facial expressions that indicate a handful of very basic emotions and then display rules teaching us or dictating to us when uh, displaying that those emotions is appropriate, um, it's just it's just very clear and very simple. I like it. Um, I don't know if Ekman is right, but I'm drawn to the clarity of the theory. He also tells the whole story of his research in the first chapter of Emotions Revealed, including when the anthropological community pushes back. And I really appreciate how open he was about the pushback he got, the challenges he faced, and how he attempted to address those challenges. Ekman goes on in his research to try to identify all of the facial expressions that human that the human face can make. And then he starts mapping and coding the face and its muscle movements. He talks about learning to isolate the muscles in his face to create different facial expressions, which is an amazing endeavor. Um, he then uses the information to create the facial action coding system or FACS, F-A-C-S. This is this is something that he claims has been used by the scientific community, and I think Pixar used it for Inside Out. Um, it's it sounds cool in theory, uh, but I really wish he had gone into more depth in the book about how, like, about the research that went into the development of the facial action coding system. I really hope it wasn't just his facial expressions that went into it. Um, Considering how differently bodies move and what a wide variety of shapes our faces have, I would, um, I, I would not be comfortable mapping the facial expressions of a white dude and then holding them up as the standard for expression. I'm just, 
not comfortable with that. And it kind of sounds like the thing that Margaret Mead would be salty about too. Suffice it to say, I have questions about how facts was developed and is currently being used that were not answered in Ekman's books. And if anybody out there has answers, please fill me in. You can DM me on Instagram or email me, um, laurel at fieldguidetobodylanguage.com. Okay. Also, while I was doing research for this episode, I watched an interview with Ekman and his daughter, who does a lot of the facial expressions uh, in the photos for Emotions Revealed. And in this particular interview, he walks her through creating certain facial expressions. The way she can articulate her facial muscles is unreal. She's had a boatload of practice because the photos of her facial expressions are in Emotions Revealed, as well as on Ekman's website and in his training tool. Um, she was a model for a lot of his work. Her The control she has over her face is just phenomenal. I will... Um, I will find a link to the interview and leave it in the show notes in just in case you want to watch it. It's it's fascinating. Um, but okay, back to Ekman's work. I'm just going to pull out one emotion to talk about in more depth so you can understand a little bit more about how he addresses each emotion and expression and also bring to light some of the things that give me pause about his work. Um, this is in the chapter on sadness on page 84. Uh, quote, Wally Friesen, uh, Friesen is Ekman's research partner, by the way. Uh, Wally Friesen and I suggested that this emotion has two distinctive sides, sadness and agony. In the moments of agony, there's protest. In sadness, there is more resignation and hopelessness. Agony attempts to deal actively with the source of the loss. Sadness is more passive, end quote. He goes on in this chapter to describe this in depth, giving facial markers that create the expression, um, like the corners of the lips are turned down, the corners of the cheeks are raised, the upper eyelids are dropped, and the eyebrows are pinched slightly together and up. Then he makes two points, like literally right next to each other, that encapsulate how I feel about this book and and his body of work as a whole. Uh, another quote, page ninety six. After like describing the expression of sadness. Sadness, pardon me. Ekman says this quote Our research shows that if you make these movements on your face, you will trigger changes in your physiology, both in your body and in your brain. End quote. I have felt this not so much with facial expressions, but with whole body movements. DMTs, uh, dance movement therapists, use this technique. There is research behind uh, the use of Botox for depression, and the theory behind it is that block it. You, the Botox blocks the movements that create sad expressions to help keep severe depression at bay. Um, I will. I'll put a link in the show notes for you uh, for the for one of the articles or one of the studies that I read. Um, so the, the research has been done. The statement tracks. But Ekman doesn't cite the research he's saying that he did, um, which I just, which bums me out. So then on page 97, we have this quote. Now let's shift our focus to how the emotion of sadness is registered in the faces we've seen. We begin by analyzing what this emotion looks like when it is extreme, and then turn to the more subtle signs of sadness and agony. Look again at Betty's expression, and here he's referring to a photo from an earlier page. Um, 
Her intense sadness or agony is displayed across her entire face. One very strong and reliable sign is the angling upward of the inner corners of her eyebrows. It is reliable because few people can make this movement voluntarily, so it could rarely be deliberately fabricated. That is not true of some of the other facial movements described later, end quote. Okay, dude. This I need a source for. How do you know that few people can make this movement voluntarily? Is it just because it took you a longer time to make it for the facial action coding system? Um, So far, other than his work with the facial action coding system, he has mentioned a handful of studies on nurses and grad students. um, And then, of course, his self-practice with facial expressions. But there hasn't been anything on a broad scale. Um, Perhaps Americans have trouble making this eyebrow position on demand, but is that true for all cultures? Let's like, what if we thought about this like a language for a moment? Americans can make the like TH sound, the th sound um, when they speak. But if English isn't your native language, then creating that sound is, is difficult. It's difficult for a lot of people who have different native languages. I have been trying forever to like lose my R's in French to absolutely no avail, but native speaker, native French speakers have no trouble with it. Um, so to make a blanket statement that the inner eyebrow pinch is reliable as an indicator because so few people can do it voluntarily, well, I, Margaret Mead would be salty about that too. Ekman goes through each of these basic expressions in detail in his book. I am not going to go through all of them. Um, you can just go read his book. Ekman is also credited with the recognition and development of the study of microexpressions. Microexpressions um, are theorized to occur when someone is hiding their emotion or trying to suppress their emotion. Um, they happen as quickly as like one twenty-fifth of a second, and they are rarely visible to the untrained eye. Ekman believes they are nonverbal leakage about a person's true feelings. What prompted this? a bit of Ekman's research was Ekman's work in a psychiatric hospital. And um, I am going to talk about suicide for a minute. So if you need to skip ahead, please do so. Um, Ekman tells the story of a suicidal patient who requested to go home for the weekend to visit her family. And after going through the interview, the doctors decided that it would be safe for her to go home for the weekend. During the weekend, while the patient was at home, she died by suicide. And Ekman wanted to know if there's any way to have known uh, that this patient would have died by suicide. Would it have been possible to prevent this tragedy? So he took the video recording of the interview and examined it frame by frame, um, like watching really carefully the patient's facial expressions. And this is when he discovered leakage. There was a hint of sadness in this patient's emotions that wasn't visible to the doctors conducting the interview at the time, but it was visible in the frame-by-frame examination later. Now, there were other scientists studying microexpressions, but the bulk of the work is largely credited to Ekman. So I'm not going to go like into the history of microexpression research. Um, but Ekman's work really came from a a really beautiful place of compassion and prevention. And unfortunately, now it just fuels literally hundreds of spot the liar trash websites and training courses. Microexpressions are all over the place on the internet. And while I'm I'm sure they do occur, 
I'm not sure how valuable it is to study them. Ekman states multiple times in his literature that even if a microexpression is spotted, there is no way to know why it occurred or whether the microexpression was related to the interaction the person observed um, is involved in currently or not. Uh, it could be a reflection of something completely unrelated to the interaction at hand. Um, so someone might want to hide an emotion and display a micro-expression of that emotion, but there's no way to know what the micro-expression is about, like what the subject is. Uh, let me give you an example. I'm at work. I'm talking to a client about their weekend plans, and I suddenly realized that I forgot to check the stove before I left the house. And oh my God, my house is probably on fire right now. My house being on fire is not related to the conversation I'm having with my client. And I would prefer to stay in the moment with my client at work. So I'm going to try and ignore my worries about the stove because it's off. I may have checked it only five times instead of the normal seven, but that sucker's still off. While I'm wrestling with that in my brain, I might display a micro expression of fear. My client might catch the microexpression and then might not. The microexpression doesn't provide any useful information other than that I am OCD and anxious. There are a bunch of lie detector training tools on the internet, and many of the people conducting that training will say that they were trained by Paul Ekman in the use of microexpressions. But if you read his work, he is very clear that very few people can accurately detect lies with more than 50% accuracy. That's just chance, folks. Microexpressions can identify what he calls a hotspot, but are not indicative of a lie. And they're not indicative of a lie because we don't know the source of the expression, like I explained earlier. In the second edition of Emotions Revealed, there is a chapter on lying, which I found much more clear and concise than the book Telling Lies. So I'm using that as a reference here. In fact, if you if you want to review Ekman's work for yourself, the second edition of Emotions Revealed is the way to go. The history of his research is in there. He goes into great deal describing his universal facial expressions, and there is a concise chapter on lying at the end. Ekman points out that there is no universal, like, quote unquote, tell for when someone is lying. He talks about the use of microexpressions in context and how important the context is. He considers the nature of the conversational exchange, um, the history of the relationship, who's turned it in to speak, um, the micro expressions, congruence with other body movements. Um, all of those he considers possible clues to deceit, but not tells, like areas that could be investigated further, but not a surefire, not a surefire tell. Despite the fact that Ekman states emphatically how difficult it is to spot a lie and that there are no surefire tells, there is a plethora of misinformation and oversimplification out there. Joe Navarro, to his credit, was very clear in his book how hard it is to detect a lie, even though he oversimplified so many other things in his work. Um, another one to be careful of is Vanessa Van Edwards of the science of people. She states on her website that Ekman is one of her teachers. And then one of the blog posts on her website is titled how to tell if someone is lying in her article. She states that everyone can learn lie detection, which isn't true. And then she cites Alan and Barbara Pease and I'll have, and I have their book and we can debunk it later. Uh, but she cites the pieces quote, women are better at lying and detecting lies than men. 
end quote. I just, I just have an eye roll emoji in my notes here. Um, the article is lengthy, uh, but the research she cites is spotty and her conclusions are oversimplified. And that frustrates me because she does a lot of public speaking engagements. And if that's what she's teaching, then she's spewing a lot of misinformation and that's not helpful. I guess my takeaway here is this. If you dive down an internet rabbit hole about lie detection or body language or anything related, go back to the source. Look at the actual studies that are cited. Read the books written by the mentors and teachers or even the you're even like the Wikipedia pages, sorry, um, about them. And and that will give you a better understanding of what is being presented. Um, and then you can decide if the website author is completely off the rails or if they're acting on good faith and the teaching of their mentors. Do your homework and think for yourself. So in summary, Ekman's work is controversial, but his book, his, his book is totally worth reading. I highly recommend the second edition of Emotions Revealed. It's a it's it's really a landmark uh, in the study of body language. You'll be able to see how a lot of pop culture body language references trace back to his work and putting stuff like that in context, especially in the context with contemporary anthropological studies of nonverbal communication is really valuable in understanding how uh, many people think about human movement today. Um, that's it, friends. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope this was interesting or at least insightful. If you have questions, feel free to DM me on Instagram. I'm at Laurel Foley, or you can email me, laurel at fieldguidetobodylanguage.com. Bye, friends. Thank you.